Thank you, choir. Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 this morning is where we're going to be. We started this passage actually last week, last Sunday, and I mentioned that we would uh, finish this same passage today, so looking at it a little bit differently than we did last Sunday. Uh, a passage from the uh, life of the early church, chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 1 here in just a second. You probably realize that uh, it's crucial that we learn how to adapt to change. Change comes in our lives a lot of different ways, a lot of different uh, forms. Change perhaps has come to your family, change maybe has come to your job, change has come to your life perhaps in a, in a unique way recently, yes, well not yesterday but Friday, uh, I was over at the house where I grew up, where my mom and dad lived, of course my dad uh, passed away back in September a year ago and uh, my folks had lived in that house for probably 50 years or so off of Bonaventure Road, a house where I was born and raised, my brother was pretty much born and raised there and, and it was, literally was home <laughs> for us as a family and uh, my mom and dad moved, moved out, they moved into town because it was just too much to take care of for them probably a year, maybe a year and a half or so before my dad passed away. And, uh, but they had still had the house. And so my brother called me this past week. We knew that, that it was going to close soon. And uh, he said, you know, we're closing on the house on Friday. And so uh, I scooted over there Friday afternoon and uh, just took some pictures and, and uh, had been over there recently. But it was that time in my life where I knew, you know, this is the last time that this is going to be home. And it was just a time of, of just face-to-face with change. Not that change had not come, but just being reminded again that change happens, and it happens consistently in our lives. I still remember as a, as a, as a boy, probably middle school, maybe high school age or so, I still remember, I don't, I don't know why, but you probably have these crazy remembrances of things that happen, and you think, why do I remember that? But I remember uh, uh, as a kid sitting on the fence across the street from, uh, from our house thinking, you know, it's going to be hard one day when I think about somebody else living in this house. Now, I was probably 15, 16 years old thinking that day will never come, and Friday it did. And it reminds me that change happens in our lives. How we adapt to change, how we re- embrace it, how we respond to it oftentimes is key. And what we find here in Acts chapter 6 is that the early church faced a time of change. It was a change that came for them. It was a challenge that, that uh, sprung up in their midst. And how they would deal with this challenge, how they would deal with this change was going to be crucial to them as to whether or not they'd be able to push forward and to see the, the gospel advanced or if they would just slink back and be another movement that would have fizzled out in just a matter of time. And so how they dealt with this change was imperative for them. It was very important for them. And so let's pick up here in Acts chapter 6 verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 7, and we're going to find that they dealt with the change that came through serving. And so Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It says, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And so the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples, and they said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now let me stop there for a second because this could be confusing maybe for you if if you've not followed through Acts up to this point. Now at this point... Jesus has already come. He's done his three and a half years of ministry. He's already died on the cross as a sacrifice for sins. He's already risen from the dead, and he's already ascended back up to heaven to the Father. And so the book of Acts records for us the events over the next 30 years of the church being born and the church maturing and expanding. And so what we find here in verse 2 is really a reflection of that transition. It says the 12. Who is the 12? You'd be tempted to think that the 12 in verse 2 
are the disciples, but it's not. It's these early apostles. Many of them would be the same, obviously, but it's a reference to the apostles. And in verse 2 it says, So the twelve, the apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples. (laughs) Well, who are the disciples? Uh, They're not the ones you read of in the Gospels. These disciples here, this is a reference to the followers of Christ to this point. And so the 12 apostles faced a need, and they called together all the disciples, all the followers of Christ. John MacArthur, a noted uh, theologian, a a writer, a pastor, has commented, and this is subjective, but under his estimation, he would estimate at this point in Acts 6 that there would be as many perhaps as 20,000 Christians in existence. And so the church has been growing, and it's been growing quickly, it's been growing consistently. And so it says the problem that would arise required that the apostles call together all the followers of Christ to address an issue. And so let's pick up in verse 3. They say, But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Well, the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles. And after praying, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And so what we find here in Acts 6 is that conditions are changing, and they're changing very, very quickly. The early church is growing at a very rapid pace, and as a result of that, we see an atmosphere of excitement, an atmosphere of anticipation, and an atmosphere of growth. If we look back in Acts, you don't have to turn there, I'll just remind you that in chapter 2, it tells us that at one point through a message that Peter preached, 3,000 people came to Christ in one single day. In one message, 3,000 people placed their faith in Jesus. The Bible tells us also in Acts later that God would consistently add to their number daily. It says that a couple of different times in those first five chapters. Another point, a message that Peter would preach, another couple of thousands would come to Christ. And so the church is growing. The atmosphere is one of growth and excitement and anticipation. Yes, they face persecution. Yes, they've been intimidated. Yes, they have, a, have, a, have to deal with hypocrisy in their own ranks. But this is a church that is growing. That's the atmosphere. But in the midst of that atmosphere, there was a tension that had rose up. And that tension was that there was a certain segment of that body of Christ, of that church, that was being overlooked. They're called the Hellenistic widows. It says in verse 1, tells us that it was a group of widows who were of the Hellenistic Jews that were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now what does that look like? It's real important for us, so let me kind of explain it a little bit the best I can. If you remember earlier in Acts, in chapter 2 and in chapter 4, what were those early followers doing? It's real radical. They were selling their stuff. They were selling their homes and their land, their possessions, and they were giving them to the church basically for anyone who had need. They were so good at it. We looked at this last week. They were so good at what they did that there was not one needy person in their whole congregation, their whole midst. And you're talking about thousands of people because these folks were radical about meeting needs in their midst. And they were following an Old Testament mandate to care for the poor amongst them. And so what we find here is that apparently on a daily basis, food was being distributed to those in need. And a part of the needy group were were a group of widows. 
Now it says that they were specifically in verse 1 of the Hellenistic Jews. Who are the Hellenistic Jews and who are the native Hebrews? Well, those are both groups of Christians. They had placed their faith in Christ. They were a part of the body of Christ. Right now, all of the believers were Jewish. The church hasn't expanded yet. We'll get there in chapter 8. They'll launch out to Samaria and then ultimately even beyond there. But most of the Christians, if not all of them at this point in Acts, are of a Jewish heritage. And of that group, you had the Hellenistic Jews who were previously scattered. They had lived outside of Jerusalem. They had lived some near, many of them far. And they had come back to Palestine to make their home. During their time of being away from Palestine, they had been enculturated to Greek culture. They were Hellenistic or Greek in culture. And yet they were Jews by birth. And so you had the Hellenistic Jews that had come to Christ. And then you had a second group. You had the native Hebrews, the ones that had always lived there. They still spoke the native language. They didn't speak Greek as the Hellenistic Jews did, and they were a majority. So you had the Hellenistic Jews, a minority, and you had the native Hebrews, a majority, all of them now Christians and who were comprising this early church. The widows that were being overlooked whenever the food was handed out were of the Hellenistic Jews, and there was a potential disruption there that could have exploded if it wasn't dealt with. If this tension wasn't addressed, if these changing circumstances were not addressed quickly, this could have been the downfall almost of this early church. Now we know the church is going to stand, Jesus promised it, but it could have been severely hindered and its ministry could have been hampered tremendously if this division wasn't dealt with. People were already beginning to complain, verse 1. They were beginning, beginning to grumble. There was a division, you can imagine, between the Hellenistic Jews and the native Jews because their folks weren't being taken taken care of, and this thing could have just blown the, blown the top off the lid if they didn't deal with it quickly. And so what was the solution? The solution is in verse 3. Select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom, may we put it, who, whom we may put in charge of this task. So the apostles, in verse 4, were going to continue to pray and to minister, teaching and preaching, and these seven men were going to be responsible to serve and so here's how the tension's dealt with. We're going to pick out some guys here that are faithful, that are proven, and that, that, uh, that meet the criteria, and we're going to let them serve. And they're going to serve these needs, they're going to meet the needs, and what was the result? Verse 7, the church would continue to advance, the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase in Jerusalem. Many were coming to faith. And so they dealt with this changing condition very rapidly, very effectively, and they did it, don't miss this, they did it through serving. Now here's how good they were. Look at the end of verse 7. We're going to get to a couple of points here quickly. Look at verse 7. At the very end of verse 7, it says, And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. That is tremendously significant. Because what you find here is that you've got a group of the people who are the actual leaders in Judaism who were priests, not the high priests. They likely were not members of the council of the of the, uh, of the reigning council of the Sanhedrin. These were priests that had other functions in the temple. And the Bible says in verse 7 that many of them even were coming to Christ. Now don't miss that significance because what you find here is a group of people who are leaders in Judaism who are picking themselves up out of, the, out of Judaism and they're surrendering their lives to Christ. They are turning from not just their own Jewish circles, but from their own sin, and they are admitting and confessing and even responding to the, the, to the simple truth that Jesus is God. He wasn't just a great teacher. He wasn't just a leader. He was exactly who he claimed to be. He is God. 
who died and who rose. And they were turning from, from their leadership in Judaism to trust their lives to Christ. Now imagine the next time, and I don't, I don't say this in any malicious sense, I just say it as an illustration. Imagine, imagine the next time you have two folks who are, say, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons who are knocking on your door, and imagine that you open the door and you begin to engage in conversation and imagine that you share the gospel with them and you tell them of your faith in Christ and who you believe Jesus is, that he's just who the Bible claims he is, that he's God, he's not created, that he died on the cross, rose from the dead, that we only are, are able to know God when we turn from our sin, place our faith in Christ. And imagine you take five minutes just to lay out your own little testimony, your story of how you came to know Christ and what it takes to know Jesus today. And imagine you share that and right there on your doorstep, those two Jehovah's Witnesses say, you know, we've missed it all along. Today, we are going to leave the kingdom hall. We're going to leave whatever group we're part of. And we, we confess today, Jesus is God. He is Lord. And in fact, can you help me pray today and to give my life to Christ? Imagine that happening. Would that not be almost miraculous? Yes. This is what this was like. Priests. <laughs> I mean, the temple. They are leaving their, their mistaken understanding that Jesus was not God to embrace him as God. And one of the reasons I believe they were able to do that was because of the validity to the message of the gospel that they saw in these early followers. They cared for their own and they cared for others. They chose seven men. We won't go through the names again. Two of them you'll read of later. Philip would be a tremendous evangelist later we'll see in the book of Acts. And of course Stephen we're going to get to next chapter, chapter, well partly this chapter and then chapter 7. He'll become the first martyr in the Christian era. And so seven men, all Hellenistic Jews, they were Christians, they were of a Greek background, who were chosen to provide leadership in serving the needs of this church. And so what are a couple of principles that come out of this? Let me give you two. The first one is this. Consistent serving directly impacts the growth of the church. Consistent service directly impacts the growth of the church. Serving has to be a part of who we are. It has to be a part of what we do. We don't talk about serving because there's a need in the preschool or because we need someone to stack chairs. We talk about serving because the Bible talks about serving. In fact, whenever we talk about serving, what we have to do is we, have to, we almost have to restructure our mindset about serving. It's not about serving or stacking chairs. It is about serving God and serving others. And the early followers of Christ did it very, very well. Again, so dramatic was their growth that even the priests were coming as a result of what they saw, what they heard to Christ. Now, here's why this was important for them. If they missed it here, and if they didn't deal with this tension, if they didn't deal with the widows that were being overlooked, you, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to understand, no offense to any brain surgeons who may be here, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to understand that, that this divide could have just flat exploded. I mean, if you didn't deal with this group of widows in your midst who are part of your church, that, that church would be split right down the middle aisle. I mean, you're going to have people that are going to be bunkering down, forming their little camps and their little cliques and their little groups. And if you didn't deal with it here, and if you didn't deal with it quickly, that church is going to divide. And it will be a mockery in the marketplace. It will be a mockery in their community. It will be a mockery in that region. They would not be witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria to Judea, and the other most parts of the world. They would be a laughing stock beginning in Jerusalem, extending to Samaria, on into Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the world. They would have to care for their own. 
Imagine what it would be like today. Here's what the world says when there's bickering, biting, uh, or backbiting, fighting, complaining, grumbling. We don't care for anybody but ourselves. Here's what the world says. How can you tell me about a Savior who's going to meet my needs when you don't even meet the needs of your own people? <laughs> That's what the world says as they laugh at the body of Christ scattered across the landscape of our country in many cases. How are you going to tell me about the love of God when you don't even love the person who sits three rows behind you in the church you go to every Sunday? That's what the world says. The quickest way to to absolutely derail a ministry as a church, aside from just leadership or members who carry the name of Christ falling into sin, the greatest way to derail uh, the effectiveness of a ministry is to not practice what you preach. I remember being in seminary, and we would go out on Friday evenings to share the gospel in the community where we were. And where I was in seminary, it was a small town. The, uh, the group of students changed the voting block in that small town, and the town didn't really like the seminary a whole lot, but it went far deeper than that. The reason was because in years past, the seminary was very, very liberal in their doctrine and their beliefs to the point to where they said one thing and they did another, the, the students that comprised it. And I remember standing on a doorstep once talking to a person, I believe it was a lady, me and another fellow, talking to her just about a relationship with God and sharing the gospel with her. And I remember her saying, you know, I've lived here a long time. And I remember walking past that campus in years past, almost being hit with liquor bottles as they came flying out of dorm windows. And this was a seminary. <laughs> I remember hearing stories of them de- demolishing one of the buildings there on campus and finding pornography and stuff that were tucked away in the, you know, in, in the, the, the spots there in some of the dorm rooms. And this was a, a seminary that was trying to reach a community for Christ. And now I understand we, we all have a long way to go in our walk with the Lord. We all have areas of our lives, myself perhaps more than any other, that God is sharpening and changing and molding and shaping, whittling off areas that don't belong, trying to put in areas that do things that do belong. And I understand we're all in process. If we're believers, God is molding and shaping us. And thankfully, Philippians 1, six, he never gives up. He always completes his work faithfully that he began in Christ Jesus. However, there is a point where we have to understand, man, this community is watching us. And if we bear the name of Christ, wherever you work, you are being watched. Wherever you go to school, students, you are being watched. Wherever you live, in your community, on your street, in your neighborhood, the places where you go, people know just because you're here that you follow Jesus. Some, they know it more because you talk about him all the time and you, you are, are constantly serving in the name of Christ. Others, they just have a sneaky suspicion that you at least go to church and they equate that with the name of Christ. Here's the problem. If we don't live the life that we proclaim, then there can be a great divide. And this world will see us, this community will see us as nothing but a farce. We become a laughing stock. What is that church all about? <laughs> and that's why the, the early church had to deal with this. They knew if... If we don't care for our own, if we can't even put food in the mouths of the widows who are part of our own church family, how on on earth are we going to reach this entire culture with the gospel message of of Jesus who died because he loves us? So they had to take it seriously. Thankfully, they did. And they did it by serving. They didn't do it just by serving. Verse 4, the leadership, and you would assume many of those who knew Christ, not just the leadership, but many of them devoted themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Where they went, they took the word of God. They preached it, they taught it, they shared it, and they served. Imagine for a second that you have been drafted to be the next opponent for Mike Tyson back in Mike Tyson's day. 
when he was beating up everybody in the ring and half of them outside the ring. Imagine that you are the one who's going to go up against Mike Tyson, right? I mean, in his heyday when he's 19, 20, 21 years old. And imagine that you get in the ring with him and you're going to try to defeat him, but you have to fight him with one arm tied behind your back. And you can pick the arm. You can just jab him all day or you can just come with the right, yeah, whatever you want to try to do. You, but still, you've got to have one arm tied behind your back. How much, how much chance will you have, will you have of, of, of beating him? I, probably two chances, slim and none. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Because, why? Because you're going to need both if you're going to have a shot at this thing at all. Here's what we often do as churches. Here's what we often do as Christians. We tie one arm behind our back. That, that arm tied behind our back is the arm of serving. And what we do is, and we need to do this, but we give them the gospel. We tell them about Jesus. We tell them about how they need to be forgiven and how Jesus died for their sins, how Jesus rose from the dead. But we never pull out the other arm of serving them. And all they hear are words, and what they never see is a demonstration of the gospel. And what happens is, is that the culture, beginning even in our own neighborhoods right here close to us, here's the danger, is that they hear the message, and they hear the message, and they hear the message, and that's good, and that's needed, and that's right, and that's proper. But they never get to see the gospel put on display. They never get the other hand that helps to emphasize the truth of the gospel as we serve them in the name of Christ. And so we try to win the culture literally with one arm tied behind our back. Oh, well, we'll just preach it every Sunday from here. Surely those without Jesus will want to come here. I mean, who wouldn't want to come here, right? Well, look around. How many we got here? 430-something last week in this service, just this service. How many live on the islands? Oh, 25,000. They're not coming (laughs) without compulsion to hear somebody stand up here and speak. The reason the way people are reached is when we, those who know Christ, leave this place and we engage those in the world with the love of Christ, proclaiming the life-changing message of the gospel that Jesus died for sinners, myself and ourselves included, but then we serve them, and we show the love of Christ, and we demonstrate a life that has changed. And what happens is is that God puts those two together, and he often compels people, draws people to himself. You know, James said, faith without works is dead. If you, if you show me your faith, or, or if you show me your faith without works, what I'll show you my faith by my works, it says in James. The two go hand in hand. The early church did it perfectly. And people were coming to Christ literally every day. God added daily to their number. And so consistent service impacts the growth directly impacts the growth of the church. Now, let me just point out something here, and, and I'll try not to camp here real long. But in Acts chapter 6, if, if you look down, when they chose these seven men, a lot of people conclude that these are the first deacons that were mentioned in Scripture. Well, the word deacon is not listed here in Acts chapter 6. We often go to it, and there's reason, but these men were not named deacons. It's later in the New Testament that the office of deacon, through Paul's letters, will be implemented, will be put into place. These men served the same role as deacons would, but these men that were chosen were not titled deacons. In verse 2, it is the, the, the verb is diakonao, which means to serve. And it's from that verb that we get the word deacon. But these men were not literally named as deacons here in Acts chapter 6. But what they did would be reflective of what deacons would do later in the New Testament. Does that make sense? 
And I'm going to come back to that in a second because it's going to be real important for us. But let's take a second. Let's see what the Bible does say about deacons. Look, look over in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Probably the classic passage to see what the Bible says about deacons. And I think this is a, a good place to do it. Again, they're not named deacons, but what they do surely looks like deacons. And uh, so let's take a sec. Because there are a couple of misunderstandings about what a deacon is today in, in ministry. Some would say a deacon is the one who runs the church. You ever heard of churches where the deacon board <laughs> were the ones who basically ran the church? You ever been in churches like that? Well, that's a joy, isn't it? When, you know, it's just, just a group of guys that got voted in because their great-granddad was a deacon, and you know, they kind of won the vote, and now they're a deacon, and I'm going to run the church. And So that's kind of the mindset of a lot of places. That's not biblical. <laughs> that's often the way it's done in church life, but it is not biblical. Nowhere in Scripture do you see a deacon as an administrator. You always see them as servants. At the other end of the spectrum, I guess, not that deacons run the church, but at the other end of the spectrum, you often see deacons as nothing more than just a popularity contest, and they just kind of get put in there because they're a warm body and everybody likes them and they're not ready, and they're going to answer to God one day for the responsibility they carried, and um, they're just, they just weren't ready. That's as much a disservice to the church as it is, you know, a reflection of the person. So what's the biblical perspective? The biblical perspective is that deacons serve. Look at what it says in 1 Timothy 3. Nowhere in Scripture do we find a detail of the responsibilities of deacons, but we find an awful lot said about what, who, they, who they should be. Nowhere does it tell us what they are to do. Often we're told who they are to be. Look at what it says, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Look at verse 12. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. So significant was the role of a deacon that in verse 11 it even mentions how their wives are to live. Verse 11, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. It would be understood from Scripture that for whatever reason God would choose, many would trace it back perhaps to the order in creation, but God would lay out for us the, the, one of the parameters is that those who would serve as deacons would be men. You say, Brooks, where do you get that? Well, in this passage, it mentions in verse 11 women. I understand that to be a reference to the wives of deacons because if it was understood that men and women could both be biblically serve as deacons, why would Paul have included this specific admonition to women? He would have just continued his thought through that passage. Does that make sense? But then in verse 12, it says, Deacons must be husbands of one, only one wife. I know this is really challenging in the culture we live in today, but it's very hard for a woman to be the husband of a wife. <laughs> and so it's just real, real clear there, and it doesn't have anything to do with, uh, with who's able or who's apt. or who. It doesn't have anything to do with all that. It has everything to do with just the way God has chosen to set it up, with the calling of God, the way that God has chosen to set the parameters, the responsibilities that are to be filled. And so it's clear. Even in Acts, though they're not named as deacons, the men who would be called, uh, the, the ones who'd be called to fill those responsibilities that sure looks a lot like a deacon would be men, all seven of them. And you'll notice there, the thing to understand is that these were guys who were to be tested. These were men, if they're going to serve as a deacon, who were, to be, who were to live a life that proved the validity of the gospel message by the way they lived. 
And so to get back to Acts chapter 6, we find that though these men were not specifically named as deacons, they served as a deacon would. And the qualifications that were required, verse 3, were that they be men of good reputation, that they be full of the Spirit, and that they be full of wisdom. In other words, that they live a life in obedience to God, that they be men of maturity and wisdom, and that their life bring about a good reputation in the community, the people that they would soon be serving. And so how did God deal with this issue, this division? He dealt with it through serving. Principle one, consistent service directly impacts the growth of the church. Principle number two, and we're done. Consistent service is also expected of every believer. Consistent service is expected of every believer. Here's why it's significant that the word deacon as a noun is not used in Acts chapter 6. Long before, well not real long before, but before the office of deacon would be dealt with in Scripture, you find a church in its infancy with people with needs, and the way that it would be filled would be by men who were qualified, men who were proven, and men with hearts to serve. They didn't just say, well, let's just get the deacons to do it. No, they chose from amongst themselves people who would fill the need before deacons ever even existed. How can we carry that over? I would carry it over this way. That for us as believers, by virtue of the fact that we are followers of Jesus who came not to be served but to serve, every person who knows Christ then is placed into this ministry called service. And it is expected by God that those who know Him will live a life yielded to Him and live a life that is one of serving those closest to us and even those that we don't even know. Those who are part of the body of Christ and those that don't even know Jesus. In fact, you don't have to turn here, but just listen as I begin to close in the book of Titus. I've been studying in Titus a little bit more recently. Listen to what it says in Titus. Don't turn there, just listen. Titus chapter 2, verse 10, speaking of Christ. It says, of Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people not a preacher, not a deacon, but a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Listen to chapter 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God, that possibly is you, will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Verse 14, Titus 3. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. So what do we see in Acts chapter 6? You see a church on the verge of crisis. The heart of that issue is that there are needs. The solution to it was that there were people that were handpicked, earmarked, and put into service to meet the needs. And the result, the gospel increased or, or, or advanced, the church expanded, and the ministry grew. And so when we look at life today, and we look at churches like this one, and we look at these islands and the city in which we live and the world in which we live, so lost and separated from God without a Savior, in need of the Savior that we know, 
I think we need to understand that in addition to proclaiming the message of the gospel, and I hope you do where you go, where God leads you, in addition to inviting people to church, and I hope you do that because it's important, that we also need to validate the message as we serve and as we meet the needs of people amongst us and outside of us. And as we do, I have a sneaky suspicion that the same thing that happened here (laughs) will happen here. Many will come to Christ because the truth of the gospel demonstrated through a real life that served as he did. With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. You know, are you willing to ask, are you willing to say, Christian, are you willing to pray to God? Today I yield my life to you as your servant. Not just, Lord Jesus, will you forgive me? Lord Jesus, will you save me? Not just, Lord Jesus, will you give me a place in heaven? Will you bless me this side of eternity? But today, God, I yield my life. I surrender it to you as one of your own to serve. God will show the areas where service is needed. He'll show you the people with needs. If you're just willing to surrender your life, and if I'm willing to do the same, to meet them through our lives of service. You know, for some this morning, you're here, and you may be here for a number of different reasons. Maybe you've been here for a long time, or perhaps this is one of your first Sundays you've ever come. Maybe your very first one. Somebody may have invited you, or you heard about a church here, and you wanted to start going. Whatever reason, for you, the place perhaps is not to serve. It's to give your life to the one who served you by going to the cross in your place. You know, Jesus, as God, came, and he lived a perfect life. And when he died on the cross, he died to take your place. It's a very simple message. Because our sin separates us from God, if he were to let it in, he would have a lot to explain. His integrity, his his holiness, his perfection would be compromised if God did not address sin. And so he has to deal with it. It's that ugly in his sight. But he chose to deal with it by sending his own son, Jesus, to die on the cross, to take the penalty of sin in our place. When he died three days later, he rose again. And today that same Jesus stands ready to forgive and to rescue and to save every person who chooses to come to God on his terms. What are those terms? The terms are simply two. One, we turn from our sin. The Bible calls it repentance. And number two, we invite Jesus literally to come into our life, to forgive us, to be first for us, to be not just our Savior, but to be our Lord. And for some of you this morning, you don't need to even think about serving others. Today, you need to make that simple choice to give your life to Christ, to be forgiven and made right with God. Then begin to serve him. As we sing in just a moment, I invite you, if you've never made that choice, you can pray right where you sit. You don't need me to take your hand. You don't need someone to walk you through it. We've got folks that'd be glad to do it, and we'd love to if you would like. But right where you sit, if you believe that Jesus is God, that he died in your place, that he rose again, and if your simple desire is to turn from sin, to surrender your life to Christ, to yield your life to him, for him to be first in you, right where you sit today, you don't even have to think up perfect words. You can just simply pray from the depths of your heart and ask Jesus to forgive you, and to step in and take over. He'll do it. If you do that, we'd love to know it so we can encourage you. And you can either share that with me at the close of the service. You can fill out one of those connection cards. Check the box that today you gave your heart to Christ. We want to encourage you in that walk. And Christian, you know, for us, we need to decide. Are we going to live a life that proves what we preach? Are we going to share the message but also live it as we serve those around us? God, I pray today that good decisions be made. Lord, that decisions that honor you, that glorify you, 
and that put us in position to minister to people the way you did. I pray that those decisions will be made today. Lord, I pray that you'd give us boldness to follow where you lead us today. And for those that don't know you, give them the courage today to surrender it all to Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.